<clears throat> so, Father, I just want to, again, thank you for this day that you've given us, this beautiful day that you've given us. Thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and learn. And just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide my words, that uh, I would be able to do justice to your, this word, your word, your truth, and that um, it would bring glory to you, Lord, and it would uh, be challenging, it'd be encouraging to us, molding us and shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. We can thank you so much for this time. In your name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So we're going to be this morning. Our passage that we're going to be focusing in on is uh, verses 17. Oh, no, not no, it's not 17. Uh, we're going to be focusing in on verses 25 all the way to chapter 5, verse 2. That was last week. So, yes, we are starting at verse 25. We're going to close off the chapter, chapter 4, and we're going to get just the first two uh, verses of chapter 5. We're taking a large chunk and turning into little itty-bitty bite-sized chunks so that we can just uh, really marinate, chew, and receive the amazing truth of this amazing letter. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul while he was a prisoner in Rome to a church uh, in Ephesus, a, a place that he personally ministered to for over three years. Uh, it was a, a, a significant city. It was a prosperous city. It was a city that had tremendous influence in that area and also around the entire Roman Empire. But it was a spiritually dark city. And it was in this city that Paul came and he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, as a result, people responded uh, very positively and they received uh, the free gift of salvation. They put their trust, their faith in uh, Jesus Christ. And it was you know, just such an amazing thing that was happening in and around the the. Uh, the city of Ephesus. Um, before Paul actually left, uh, where eventually he got uh, arrested, uh, he understood that there were going to be individuals, false teachers. He, he called uh, some of them wolves who would kind of sneak in to the ranks of, of the church and cause a whole bunch of problems. That they would try you know, to, to, to teach you know, deception, deceive the, the church, and try to hinder the good work that God had uh, started. Uh, in the church. And so uh, as Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, uh, no doubt he's gotten news or gotten word, received word that individuals were call, causing some, some issues, some, some problems. And so he writes this letter and he spends a big chunk of his letter, the ha half of it. In our Bibles, it's the first three chapters really hammering in uh, some, some doctrine, some background theology. It's just what God has done uh, through salvation, this free gift that we have received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And particularly he focuses in on the believer's identity in Christ, who, the, who Christians are in Christ. Because again, your identity uh, influences your activity. When you know who you are, you know how to behave, you know how to live. And so uh, Paul uh, really, really focuses in, really wants to nail this, uh, this truth um, 
in their minds. And then when we come to chapter 4, he transitions from instruction to now practical application of that instruction. So, you know, you're, you're in Christ, and now how do you live? Practically, how does that work its way, itself out? How do you live as someone in Christ? And he begins this chapter so perfectly. He says, you know, I, I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I, I exhort you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, again, that word worthy is the Greek word axios. It, it doesn't mean live your life to earn your calling. It doesn't mean to live your life in such a way that deserves your calling. It means to live your life in such a way that corresponds, that is fitting, that is congruent to who you already are. You are already in Christ, so now live it out. You are already a new creation, so live as a new creation. That's what he's getting. And what, what, what does it look like? Well, he gets a little bit more detailed. He says it looks like unity. Uh, we're, we're, we're not just living solo lives. We're part of the, the church, and we're supposed to be united, and we're supposed to have gentleness and patience and tolerance for one another with love. It looks like the church maturing, growing, not, becoming, uh, not st- uh, staying spiritual babies, but growing up and maturing in their faith in the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at verses 17 through 24, and Paul uses the language of clothing is the idea of take off that old self and put on the new self. And he goes through great pains to describe the filth and the dis- dis- disgusting old garment that we used to wear. How dirty and stinky and smelly it was. And just take it off. And put on the new self. You, you, you're, you're, no, you're no longer that old self. You're, you're a new creation. So wear what is appropriate for you. You know, you've already been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So take off that dirty clothing and put on the new clothing. And, and he, as we get into our passage today, he even carries on that language. Look at verse uh, 25 of chapter 4. He says, therefore, for this reason, again, kind of pointing back to what we've just been talking about of the believer taking off the old self, putting on the new. He says, therefore, laying aside. Again, it's that, that idea of taking off the old, putting on the new. And the way Paul puts this is take it off and leave it off. Take it off and leave it off. Don't even pick it up to put in the hamper to get washed. Just leave it. Some of you who are parents uh, know uh, that as kids, when they're little infants, um, they sometimes have what we call blowouts. You know, and it's just, it, oh, it happens. And, you know, but sometimes, and it's a day that we dread, where it's not just simply a blowout. It is an epic atomic bomb monster of a blowout. It is a blowout that ex- defies physics, the laws of physics. How could the mess in here travel all the way up the back onto the top of their head? That kind of epic blowout. It's just, you don't even want to touch them. You're like, ah, unclean. And meanwhile, they're smiling at you like, what's the problem? You know, they're totally fine. What do you do? You take them out, right? If you're at home, where does the baby go? In the bath, right? You're going to watch. You're not, wipes can't deal with this. You wipies, I don't care which kind they are, whether synthetic or organic, they ain't going to cut it. You're going to put them under the water. You're going to wash them. Now, once they're washed, you go ahead and put that dirty diaper back on. 
No, it doesn't make sense. It's filthy. It's gross. What about the clothing? Do you even attempt to clean off that filth and put it in the, in the, in the laundry basket? No. Yeah, you burn it. You incinerate it. You take it off. It's off. Don't even touch it. Let it go. That's kind of the idea. You are a new creation. Take off the old. Take it off. Leave it off. Don't even pick it up to put it in the hamper. Let it go. Incinerate it. Put on the new self. And in our passage this morning, uh, Paul is, uh, you know, because we are followers of, of Christ, we are in Christ, we have a new lifestyle. And this lifestyle uh, involves replacing vices, saying no to vices, and saying yes to virtues. A vice, by definition, is just simply an immoral, wicked behavior or an attitude. A virtue is the opposite. It is a morally upright, righteous behavior and attitude. So replace the vices, say no to the vices, say yes to the virtues. But before we dive in, I just want to make three observations in regards to this passage. The the first observation is that as uh, Paul is giving these commands, he's he's giving them within the context of a community. These are relational commands. Because the truth is, we were never meant to live life on our own. I mean, that goes all the way back to Genesis. Uh, you know, one when God's creating the, the world and he says, well, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. He comes to humanity and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. And Adam and Eve, as they live life together with God in relationship to one another, they beautifully reflected the image of God. They imaged him well. And, and, and so you know, human, human beings are, are not meant to live our lives on our own. Uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, verse 1, it, it, it says, you know, he who isolates himself seeks his own, his own desires. It's a foolish thing to purposefully isolate yourself from other people. It leads to you just wanting to do your own thing. It leads to bad Bad stuff, don't go there. When we put this in the context of the church, as followers of Jesus, as individuals who are in Christ, as that is our new identity, we are not meant to live out our identity solo, by ourselves. We are meant to to do so in a community, in this thing called the church, because we are part of the church. We are part of the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so naturally, Paul, when he gives these commands, he's like, that's the context that I want you to obey these commands. That you are not just living by yourself, isolated somewhere in some mountain on, you know, 37 acres by yourself. No, you are living your life in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Carry out these commands. Now, this is where words and eloquence really fail me in describing the significance, the importance, and the beauty of the church. When I, tell, when, I tell, when I mention the church, I don't want you guys in your minds to, to think of our parking lot, to think of this building, to think of the lights, to think of the fans twirling, the projector on, the speakers, or anything like that, the chairs that you're sitting in. When I mention the church, I want you to envision all these people. That's what I'm talking about. Because the church is not a building, it's not a bunch of events, it's not uh, even ministries, it is people, 
men and women who call upon the name of the Lord, who are in Christ, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the church. And, and, and as a young person, uh, you know, 13, 14, I recognize the significance and importance of being connected to the church because it benefited my walk, spiritually speaking. I mean, I would not be where I'm at today, standing here preaching the word as a pastor, had it not been for my involvement in the church and individuals, pastors, and other members of the church pouring into my life, building me up. It's really significant. It's really important. And when, when you see a, a, a Christian who willfully isolates himself, who, who doesn't live his life in community, not part of the church, you see it doesn't help them. It hinders them. It's like they're stuck in their faith. They're stuck in their understanding of God's word. They're not really fully able to appreciate it, the magnitude of God's word, particularly when it comes to Ephesians, because again, this is life as in Christ is to be lived out within the community of the church. So I, you know, I recognize as a young person the significance and the importance of the church. It was only when I moved here over five and a half years ago that I recognized the beauty of the church. Because we left, our family moved almost 1,000 miles away from all of our family, all of our friends, everyone we knew. And the church, this, the people, not the building, the people were a tremendous lifeline to us. We saw the beauty of the church. Living life together, we're all family members. We weren't, our, our, you know, my mom, my dad, were, and brothers and uncles and cousins and friends, they're all a thousand miles away, but I had other brothers and sisters in Christ. I had other uncles and grandmothers and cousins in Christ. And that was amazing. So again, words and eloquence really fail me to describe the significance and importance and the beauty of the church. I wish I could just like rip my heart out and just like implant it so you could understand it. Because the truth is, you, some of you are nodding and you may understand it. You may go, okay, I could sympathize. I can kind of put myself in your shoes. But if you've lived here, you grew up here, lived here any number of years, you've established roots here, your children grew up here, you have family already here, you have friends, you have connections already, you really don't know what I mean by the beauty, significance, importance of that, the church. You may get a little bit of glimpse, but you really don't know. When you've got nothing, and all of a sudden God's like, here's my family. This is your family too. I mean, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So that's the first observation, that these commands are relational. They, they all pertain. The context is within the community of believers. The second thing is that whenever Paul, uh, Paul gives a, a command, he gives a negative command, and then he also gives a positive command. It's not just don't do this. It's don't do this, but say yes to this. It's kind of the idea of, you know, don't just say no to sin. Say yes to God. Say yes to God and, 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 his, and his goodness. And, and third, uh, as Paul is, is giving these commands, notice that he also gives a reason why he's giving these commands. There's a reason why he's, he's giving the commands to, to not, be, not be deceitful, to not have uncontrolled anger, to not be stealing, and so on and so forth. And so as we dive into this passage... Let's keep that in mind. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4. 
starting at verse 25. We are saying no to vices, yes to virtues. And the first thing that Paul's going to bring up is that as followers of Christ, we are to say no to falsehood, but yes to truth. No to falsehood, yes to truth. Look, look with me at verse 25. Paul says, therefore, again, for this reason, pointing back to the idea of taking off the old self, putting on the new self. Therefore, laying aside, take it off and leave it off. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth. And then the, the, the way he puts that, it's, it's to be a continuous thing. It's supposed to be continuously active in our life. Continuously speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Now, technically, the word for neighbor uh, means just a fellow man. Uh, and so you can go to Bymard, you can go to any store, whatever, and that person next to you is your neighbor. But Paul is, is, is being more focused here. He's, he's talking about believers, uh, the, the church, members, brothers and sisters of, of Christ's body, the church. That as, as Christians, we are to continually speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Why? Continues on. For we are, we continually exist as members of one another. The word that he uses for members can be translated body parts or limbs. That we are, we are part of, uh, Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians that we've all been baptized by one spirit into one body. Jesus is the head of this body. He's the one who guides, directs this body. He's the one who nourishes and builds this body. But we are the limbs. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. That there, we, we are united, but we're not uniform. That each one of us has a, a, a part to play. That each one of us has been uh, um, equipped to handle various tests so that we complement each other just like our bodies need all the limbs and ligaments and bones and everything working together just to simply walk from one side of the room to the other to do what the body is called to do we as a church body need to be functioning together united working side by side complementing each other in such a way that we allow the church to be the church that God wants us to be and as a, 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 the, a, a church, we are to continually speak the truth. We are to lay aside the falsehood, continually take it away. The word falsehood um, is any deviation uh, from the truth uh, with the intention of deception, with the intent to deceive. Deceiving is, is not welcome. I mean, that's deception, falsehood, lying, destroys uh, a community that destroys relationships. When Paul gives this command, he's actually quoting an Old Testament uh, passage. It's actually found in the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter eight. And in the context of that passage, um, the, 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 the prophet is looking forward to the day when God will rule and reign in the city of Jerusalem and that Jerusalem will be called a city of truth. And so the command is, since you're my people, Israel, continually speak truth to one another. Since I'm a God of truth, you are my people, you are to be a people of truth. The same thing with us as a church. We are God's people. We, we um, don't replace Israel, but, but we are God's people. We are part of his household, and we are to be also people of truth. Continually living out the truth and speaking the truth to one another. What happens when uh, falsehood, when lies and deceit come into uh, a community? It devastates a community. 
It devastates, particularly in a church. It's devastating. I mean, think about um, how devastating is it when a congregation cannot trust their leadership at a church? How devastating is that? There are a number of churches, some big churches right now who are under scrutiny, even among the public eye, not just the Christian uh, uh, world, but even the, the secular world, as we want to call it, but they're under scrutiny because the lead pastors, the leaders were lying to their congregation. They've been serving for so many years and they found out, oh, they've been covering up all these different sins, that they've been living two double lives, that they say that, you know, they, they speak one thing, but they behave another, that some of them are misappropriating, stealing and misappropriating funds from the church to, to suit themselves. How devastating is that for a congregation to hear that, to go, oh my goodness. Deceit breaks trust, Right? If you can't trust your leaders, that's devastating. If, if brothers and sisters in Christ can't trust each other, that's devastating. You know, as, as, as the, the Bible says that we are to you know, confess our sins one to another, that we're to spur one another on towards righteousness. Well, the only way that really happens is when there's trust. When we've developed this trust among each other, I trust you. The reason I come to you is because I trust you. Because I, I understand that if I lay my burden at your, at, you know, a burden, something that's, that's, that's bothering me, if I lay it at your feet, or not feet, if I, if I tell you, I, I trust you that you're not going to take it and, you know, breaking news to everyone else, that you're going to keep it in confidence. But if I don't trust you, that's not going to happen, Right? See, idea too, it's like if, if, if someone comes to me, uh, even to, to like, reprove, uh, correct, or because they have a concern, if I trust them, I trust that they're not out to get me, I trust that they're, they're not out to, for my, to, to hurt me, they, wanna, they love me, I know that they love me, I've seen it, I trust them. So I trust what they're saying, they're saying from a, a real heart, a heart of love, not a heart of animosity, I trust them. But when trust is broken, it devastates. It devastates. And so, so Paul, Paul's saying, as a church of believers, we are to say no to falsehood, no to deceit, no to lies, and yes to truth. And the reason why is because we are all members of one another. We all belong to the church. We all belong to the body of Christ. The next thing he's going to go into is we as Christians are to say no to uncontrolled anger and yes to controlled anger. Now that may sound a little bit strange to some of you maybe some of you even ruffles your feathers what what's going on paul's not pulling any punches let's let's look what he says verse 26 he says be angry and yet do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger now some people say well obviously there must be a different word there for anger like there must be something hidden that we're not catching because really anger the word that Paul's using here for be angry is the Greek word orgizo, which just simply means a set of feeling of anger. That's what it means. The way Paul presents this command is it's, in, it's a passive, which means a better translation of this command would allow yourself to be angry. What Paul's basically doing is he's acknowledging the fact that we as human beings have this thing called emotions. We have emotions. 
Now, if you're super religious, a really fundamental, really not fun person, uh, uh, religious people tend to take emotions and put them into two categories. There's good emotions and bad emotions. The idea is to embrace the good emotions, reject the bad emotions. But the truth is, God is emotional. (laughs) God is emotional. If you don't like how that is, read the Bible. God expresses emotion again and again and again. We see him glad. We see him rejoicing. We see him laughing. We see him regretting. Uh, we, 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 in, in Psalms uh, chapter 2, it says that those who, the kings, when they, the, the other nations, when they try to set themselves against uh, God's appointed king, God laughs at them. He laughs. It's like, what are you doing? Like, who are you fooling? One of, uh, in other passages, God is jealous. You know, in one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, where God is self-disclosing himself to Moses, he declares, I am the Lord, slow to anger. He's slow to anger, but he still gets angry. The thing is, emotions in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad. I have to be careful with what I say here. It's not necessarily bad, but it's what you do with those emotions. Are they uncontrolled emotions or are they controlled emotions? Are there emotions that lead to righteousness or or are they emotions that lead to unrighteousness? Because the thing is, we're going to experience emotions, particularly when it comes to anger. Because we're, we're, even though we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not perfected yet. We still have issues, you know, we still have disagreements and conflicts. And, you know, um, someone may say something or do something, whether intentional or unintentional, that hurts us. And when we get hurt, we feel angry. But what do we do with that? Paul says, allow yourself to be angry, yet do not sin. Now, this passage right here is actually another direct quote from the Old Testament. It's actually found in Psalms chapter 4. Now, in that psalm, David is expressing his his distress over the people of Israel and their constant, consistent idolatry. In fact, the verse leading up to this command of be angry and do not sin, um, David says, you know, how long will you pursue these worthless idols? How long will you pursue these worthless idols? How long will you pursue deceit? And then he gives a command. Allow yourself to be angry and yet do not sin. The idea being, David's saying, you know, your appropriate response to your sin, the sin in your life, the sin in your community, the appropriate response should be anger. It's unrighteousness. It's not good. You should be angry. The word that, uh, that in the Hebrew for, for that, the, uh, be angry, uh, some scholars say it, it almost references, or not references, it's almost, um, it's like if you have a, a, a rock in your shoe, you know, a stone in your shoe, and you're walking and you feel that rock. And it's like, ah, you can't ignore it. It's bothering you. It's irritating you. You don't like it. You want it out. That's kind of the attitude. 
David's saying that should be your response to your sin and the sin that you see in your community. As followers of Jesus Christ, when it comes to unrighteousness, when it comes to wickedness, that should be our response too. When you think of genocide, when you think of of corrupt government, when you think of oppression, when you think of of human trafficking, when you think of abortion, the murder of millions of of babies, our, our appropriate response would be anger. To be angry at that. Paul's saying, allow yourself to be angry, yet do not sin. And he expands on that. He, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's agrarian language. It's, you know, farmers, their day starts when the sun rises, and their day ends when the sun sets. Now, it's interesting here. This is where Paul uses two different Greek words for anger. The first Greek word, uh, be angry, or allow yourself to be angry, is orgizo. It means a settled feeling of anger. When he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, he uses another Greek word. It's paragismas. And, and that is really the result of letting anger stew, letting anger simmer, and eventually boiling over to where it's now this strong emotion of rage so it's the idea is allow yourself to be angry but don't let that anger stew don't let it simmer don't let it boil over because that is unrighteous that could lead to you saying something or doing something that is not okay because again we're we're not perfected yet and there's going to be moments where we get in, uh, under each other's skin. And we may be angry. It's a response. We all feel it. Don't deny it. You say, I've never been angry. You, you just, you're a sinner. Uh, you've never been. We experience it. But what do you do with it? Do you let it simmer? Boil over? Oh, I can't believe it. You go to bed, you wake up, you're even worse off. Oh, I can't believe what they did. That ruins relationships. That is very, very dangerous. In fact, uh, look what, what Paul, uh, Paul says in, in verse 27. Church is not to, 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 to allow ourselves to be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The word opportunity, do not give the devil license. Do not give him room. Some translations will say, do not give him a foothold. The Bible describes the devil as a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And then this is actually leading up to chapter 6, where Paul's going to bring up the discussion that our our battle, the real battle that we struggle with isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle that never lets up. Full of Satan and his demons that are constantly, Satan and his demons hate God and they hate God's people. And so they're looking for any opportunity, any and every opportunity, any room to work, to act. And he's very good at what he does. So Paul's saying, don't give him an inch. Don't give him an inch. All he needs is just an inch, a little bit of wiggle room, and he causes 
tremendous devastation, especially in the life of a church. Of anger, resentment. Paul's going to bring up the idea of bitterness. You think is with 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 anger, with bitter, bitterness and resentment. You know, anger that kind of boils over. If you ever met a bitter person, bitter people love company. They don't like being bitter by themselves. They have to bring other people in. Oh, did you know what this person said to me? It could have been a complete misunderstanding, but they're boiling, they're stewing over it. They're not asking, they're not trying to reconcile, they're not doing anything. They're just sitting on that anger, letting it boil, and then, oh, hey, by the way, come, let's get angry. Let's, let together, let's be angry at that person. United, we stand. Bitter people love company. Uh, Proverbs uh, has a, it's a neat uh, Kind of fits with this, but uh, Proverbs talks about, uh, you know, when, when there's not a, a, a lot of logs, uh, a fire quickly dies. But, um, you know, obviously the idea is when there's lots of logs, then the fire is going to get even more. Without gossip, a quarrel dies as well. So the idea, if you feed it, it just, it just starts to get bigger and bigger, and pretty soon it, it consumes. And anger, when it's, when it's left to just stew, simmer, and boil over, it becomes this cancer that just slowly starts attacking every part of the body. It's not good. And so Paul says, <laughs> don't do that. Why? You're, you're giving the devil a foothold. You're giving him license to have free reign on the church. Don't give him an inch. So he says, say no to uncontrolled anger. Yes to controlled anger. Again, it's the idea. It's like if, you, if you've been hurt by someone, you, you feel angry, you know, pray, take time and figure out, okay, was, is this a legitimate, was this a legitimate sin? If it was a legitimate sin, then deal with it. You know, start the whole thing of reconciliation. Deal with, and the Bible has a lot of stuff on how to deal with that conflict. If it's a misunderstanding, if it's really just a personality conflict, maybe preferences and expectations, if it's that, then just, hey, what are we supposed to do? Tolerance. Bear with one another. Show grace. Don't stew. Don't let that anger boil up into the point where you're just, ah. Don't let it. Don't give the devil a foothold. So then he moves on to the, the third thing. We as followers of Jesus are to say no to stealing and yes to hard work. Look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. Now the way Paul puts this, it's, it's almost like he's assuming that there were believers in Ephesus who were still practicing this. Like you who are stealing, stop it. You know, so that's the kind of what he's doing. Stop it. You who are stealing, stop it. In, in the first century, it was not uncommon for people to steal, particularly if you were a servant or you were a slave and you felt like your master was being very unjust to you and not providing for your needs adequ adequately. It was very commonplace for these servants and these slaves to steal. And so that probably was still happening. And it's like, well, no, if you're a follower of Christ, you're to say no to stealing. No to stealing. Um. 
The, the word for stealing doesn't mean to take by force. It's to take by secret. It's another form of falsehood. It's another form of deceit. It's, it's a lack of integrity. And as followers of Jesus, we are to be people of the truth because we follow the truth and the life. We are, to be, we, we are not to be letting our anger boil over and, and, and causing the, giving the devil a foothold. And likewise, we are to be known as people who have integrity, who, have, who can be trusted, individuals who, who have a good work ethic. Look what he says there. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather, on the contrary, he must labor. The idea of the word there for labor is to work really hard to the point where you're tired. Like, really bring a sweat. Work hard. Performing with your own hands what is good, what is beneficial, what is profitable for others. Why? He goes on, so that he will have something to share with one who has a need. So as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be people who, who have integrity, who have honor, who are living above reproach, who, have, who, who, who are trustworthy, who work really hard but we're also very generous. We're not to be hoarders. We're to be givers. You know, we're, we're not supposed to just be working really hard just to, 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 to pad our, our bank accounts or to put into our, our retirement funds, only our retirement funds, or only focus our funds on our fun activities and vacations. No, we have been blessed to be a blessing to others. We have been blessed to be a blessing to others. We are, if God has gifted you with significant means, God desire for you not to just hoard those means, uh, not to just, oh, stuff your barn and then build bigger barns to stuff all your stuff in it. No, he wants you to use it, to give it to those who have need. And when you're in a family, I mean, you've got people from different walks of life, people who are struggling financially, people who are struggling in other ways. You know, some don't have baby clothes, some don't have a lot of food. And we're here to, to help, to, to be generous, to, to, to give, to share. Uh, there was a story of a, of a pastor who um, wrote a book, and he wrote the book not so that he could um, draw a name to himself to say, look how amazing I am. It was a very popular book because it talked about God's love for his people. And it was, you know, biblically uh, uh, grounded, and it, it was it was actually a really good book. And it got really popular, and and because of that, he he got a lot of residuals back because of the 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 book sales. But what he did with that money, instead of just hoarding hoarding it, putting it in his pastor retirement fund or whatever, he ended up giving it away. He actually organized an event where he hired professional chefs to cook a fine, elegant, three-course meal to the local community, families and individuals who were struggling financially during Christmas time. And he, it was for free. He just, I think it was like over 500 meals that was prepared. And he paid that out of the, out of the and people were like, you are crazy. He's like, are you kidding me? You know, I worked hard on, you know, you worked, the, 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 the thing that people were coming at him were, you worked really hard on that book. It took you a number of years to get that book just ready for print. And I mean, you should enjoy the spoils of your work. He says, no, we're called to, to give. 
I've been blessed. And yeah, the Lord provided for him and his family. But he's like, I've got all this extra. What am I going to do with it? I'm going to give it away. The next year, he made over $1 million. The year after, $2 million. And he just was like, I get to give it all away. He was so excited. It brought him so much joy. Not to hoard it and say, oh, it's mine. Mine, 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 mine. But to give it. So as followers of Christ, we're to say no to, to stealing. We are to, to be men and women of integrity, of honor, trustworthy, with a good work ethic. And the reason why we work hard is not just to provide for our own needs, but to give, to share, to distribute, to bestow on those who have needs. And there are many people in churches who have needs, even outside the community, who have needs that we can, we can meet. Uh, fourth thing that Paul brings up um, is, uh, as Christians, we are to say no to words that rot and yes to words that build. Let's look at verse 29. Paul gives a command, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word proceed is the idea of to depart, to discharge, to cast out from your mouth. And the word unwholesome is an interesting word that means rotten, corrupt, rancid, unserviceable. You can have rotten meat in your refrigerator and really rotten meat. No matter how well you prepare it, and season it, no matter how well you cook it, it's still going to get you what? Sick. Why? Because it's rotten. It's, gonna, it's not going to help you. It's going to harm you. And, and that's what Paul says. Let no unwholesome word, no, let no word that can rot, that can, that can hurt someone, proceed, come out of your mouth. In uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, uh, verse 18, it says, the, the one who speaks recklessly, his words are like thrusts of a sword. I mean, they cause, when you're thrusting a sword, you're, you're causing damage, right? But it says the tongue of the wise brings healing. So Paul's like saying, listen, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. No, no more, no more. Watch your mouth. Watch your words. Watch what comes out. Watch what you say. Now, the, the phrase, very familiar, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never what? Hurt me. That's wrong. Sticks and stones do break bones, but words can cause a lot of harm. Words can cause a lot of harm. And so what Paul's saying, as Christians, in this, in this community of believers, we are to continually watch our mouth. Watch what we say. Don't let unwholesome, unserviceable, harmful words come out of our mouth. Words that will, will, aren't going to build someone up, but that tear them down. Now, some people will say, well, you don't understand. They really wronged me. But that doesn't give you an excuse to you know, respond uh, to sin with sin. You know, we are not to you know, respond with evil with evil. The Bible is really clear about that. We're, we're not to, to do that. Some people say, well, well you know, I'm, I'm just speaking the truth. No, you're being a jerk. 
you know, watch what you say. Watch what comes out of your mouth. Is what you're going to say, is it going to be good? He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but, and it's like, in the Greek it's a Allah, which is a strong contrast here. In, instead of that, only such a word as is good, that is beneficial for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment. Proverbs says, you know, a, a word, a timely word, how good is it? It really indeed is good. You know, it's, it's healing. It's like medicine. You know, we, we are not, as a people, are not to be uh, hurting each other. We're to be helping each other, encouraging one another, healing each other. We need to watch our words because our words can really inflict some major damage and that could devastate a church. We need to watch our mouths. And the reason why, the reason why we are to watch our mouths, Paul says at the end of, of verse 29, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That it will bestow. It's, it's kind of like the idea. It's like it'll, almost like a present. It'll, it, it'll be a gift of grace, of favor, of love, of kindness to those who hear. Again, we're, we're to be people, uh, a people in, of love and of kindness, of gentleness, of patience, bearing with one another, being careful with what comes out of our mouth. I mean, once it's out, it's out. I mean, how many of you as parents use the illustration of toothpaste in a toothpaste tube? You know, as soon as you squeeze that toothpaste out, can you put that toothpaste back in? Well, maybe just a little bit, but you cannot put all of it back in. It's out. Same thing with our words. When, we, when the words just come out, we can't bring them back in. So we've got to be mindful what we're going to say to each other. Let no unwholesome word. Whether that's, you know, is this joke going to bring honor to God? Is, is it going to just, you know, is, is it going to help my brother or my sister? Is this word going to encourage them? Is this word uh, going to be beneficial for them? Or is it going to tear them down? Is it going to trip them up? Is it going to lead them to temptation? Watch what comes out of our mouths. Only such is good for the edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And then he moves on to, to verse 30. And, and really this, is, this command is ultimately, at least I, I, I can say me personally in studying this passage, I see this as the result of when believers don't say no to vices. You know, uh, they, 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 in fact, they, they, they live in those vices. They don't put off the old. They, they still keep it on. What, what happens at that? It, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 30. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve. The word there for grieve is to cause sorrow, to, to, to cause pain, to make sad. The Holy Spirit is not this impersonal force, you know, not this like weird thing that just kind of, you know, makes us super Christians or anything. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's a person that we've received in the moment of salvation. It's a person that we are in relationship with. And when we have vices instead of virtues in our life, that hurts the Holy Spirit. It gives him pain. It grieves him. It grieves the heart of God. It reminds me of a passage um, where after David uh, you know, had an affair, King David in the Old Testament had an affair, and then subsequently he, he murdered 
the, the, the husband of the woman who he had an affair with to try to cover up that sin. And eventually he was found out and he was you know, convicted. And he says, you know, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Yes, his sin caused a lot of damage with, with a lot of relationships and with people, including his, his kingdom. But ultimately, David understood that the, the, the most offended party was God. I offended you. When Christians continue uh, to, to, to say yes to vices and no to virtues, we grieve, we pain the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't do that. And the reason why, look what he says in the end of verse 30. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed, you were stamped, you were marked out as you belong to God. This is who you are and that's not going to change. It's going to lead all the way to your redemption to your final glorification. That's who you are. It doesn't make sense for you to have these vices. Don't do it. It grieves me. That's what Paul's getting at. He's just like, it, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Live. You are in Christ. Live as such. You were sealed. You belong to God. And closing off this, this chapter, number six, Paul says, as a Christian, we are to say no to an, an unforgiving attitude and yes to a forgiving attitude. Look what he says, uh, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, uh, wrath is just this intense anger, uh, clamor is, is, is kind of like the shouting that would happen if you're arguing arguing with someone if you're in a fight and slander that's the it could be sometimes um it's it's like the idea of vilifying someone uh defaming someone reviling someone it says put away all that wrath anger clamor bitterness slander put be put away let it be put away let it be taken up thrown away never to be picked up again Put away from you along with all malice. The idea of malice is hateful feelings towards one another. Now, again, for me personally, when I look at this list, it, it, it really just, it, it reminds me of a bitter person. A person of bitterness, who's just in bitterness. And I like the word that Paul uses for bitterness here. It's, it, it, the word could mean poison. Something malignant. Resentment, spite. How bitter people are like that? You know, bitter people. Uh, bitter people are like archaeologists. They just keep digging things up, don't they? They just keep digging things up. Oh, you did this, and you did this, and oh my goodness, what did you? You did this. And this, and this. They just keep on. They remember tremendous amounts of details. Even if those details are a little bit skewed because maybe their mind's a little bit skewed, but they remember so many details. They remember the day, the time, what I was wearing, what you were wearing, what was the context of the thing, you know, where was the sun and the sky at that time. And they know, every, they know all these details. Why? Because they keep a record of wrong. These bitter people um, tend to be self-righteous since they perceive themselves to be the victims. I was the one wronged. You're the one who wronged me. Ugh. Bitterness, all this stuff right here. It's devastating to a church. 
It's devastating to our relationships, having that bitterness toward one another. And again, bitterness is, is, is like a cancer. It's like a fire. Why? Because bitter people love company. You're bitter about someone. You're angry. You're, you just have malice towards someone. What do you do? You start talking to someone. Oh, well, do you know this person did that? Do you see what they're doing? My goodness. Do you agree with me? You agree with me. Yeah, let's, let's go find someone else. All right, do you agree with me? Hey, listen, I got a fire that's burning here and it's kind of dying out. I need more kindling. Come on, let's go. Let's go. That's what bitter people do. And what does that do? It causes devastation in the church. Bitterness, resentment. Will we get under each other's skins? Most assuredly. Most assuredly. <laughs> you know? But when we allow that bitterness, that anger to just boil over, when we allow wrath, anger, clamor, slander, mouth, just to take a hold of our lives, the devil comes, he takes a foothold, and he causes a whole bunch of problems. So we are to say no to an unforgiving attitude. Look what he says in verse 32. Be kind to one another. The word of being kind is to be easy to bear. Don't be, you know, a burden. Be gentle. Be agreeable. Be kind to one another. Is that hard when it's someone who's wronged you? Yes. What about the second one? Tender-hearted. The word there literally means healthy bowels. Healthy bowels, yes. It's kind of this in your guts, deep in your guts, uh, 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 compassion and pity towards someone. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. The word there means to, to give grace, literally to bestow grace. Why are we to do this? Because, G, because God in Christ also has forgiven you. We to be people who, disp- to, who, who give, freely give grace, kindness, pardon. Why? Because we have received it from God in Christ Jesus. And when he says forgiving, he, he puts it in, in the, the present tense. It's something that's to continue. It's something that's continually happening. It's, you know, I, I think of the passage when one of Jesus' disciples says, you know, how many times should I forgive someone? You know, seven times? You know, and Jesus uses an idiom that basically means all the time. But what if they keep, what if they're a repeat offender? Keep on forgiving. When you forgive someone, you are literally canceling a debt. Regardless of whether or not they apologize, regardless of whether or not they, they try to reconcile, they try to fix the wrong, you're, you're, you're canceling that debt. You are no longer holding punishment over their heads. That's done away with. You've forgiven them. You've, you, you've forgiven them, and also what you've done is you've given justice that you may want over to God. When the Bible says that vengeance is the Lord's, right? He will repay. You know, he's the one who's, who's, who's going to handle it. And so we're, we're releasing that need for vengeance, that need for, for justice. We're giving it over to God. We're forgiving. We're canceling that debt. 
Again, even if they don't apologize, even if they don't try to reconcile, we're canceling that debt because we've received that same cancel of debt in our lives. Some people have uh, questions in regards to this, this, this thing, idea of forgiveness. Um, you know, oh, by, by the way, just before I move on from there, when, when, you, when you forgive someone, you're canceling a, a debt and you're handing over you know, their, their fate really to, to, to God. You're saying, God, you're the one who's going to deal with this. Our attitude toward them should change. We don't treat them horribly. We don't, you know, we see them, well, we just, ignore them, we talk evil about them to other people. No, we've canceled that debt. We, we change our, our attitude, our behavior toward them. We love them. And, and our desire, our, our, our hope, our prayer should be, if, especially if they don't uh, follow Christ, is that they would re- receive justice at the foot of the cross and not on the day of wrath that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then you know, that their lives would be changed. That's something we, we should want to see. We should, should be praying for. We forgive them. But there's some questions uh, in regarding questions, uh, regarding forgiveness. Some people wonder, you know, is, does, does forgiveness equal reconciliation? Reconciliation um, it, it involves two parties. Okay, two parties, either forgiving each other, apologizing, forgiving each other, repenting, and trying to work it out. You know, they're, they're trying to work on that relationship, rebuild the relationship. Forgiveness is something that happens even if that person never, ever attempts to reconcile. Okay, so to no, it, it's not the same as, as, as reconciliation. Another question is, is it, does forgiveness equal trust? That's a big one. Does forgiveness equal trust? And to give you an example, if, if, you have, if we had like an accountant for a church and that accountant we found out had been, not you, Jim. <laughs> I'm looking right at you. No, the conviction. No, <laughs> if we had a, a, a finance person, not Jim, not Jim Stone, um, working, uh, you know, balancing the books and all that, and it was found out that, for years, they had been stealing from the church. You know, they've been robbing the church. They've been deceitful in, in, in even filing the taxes. Now, that's a big, that's significant. That really puts the, the organization in trouble right there. What's the response? Forgiveness. But does that mean because we've already canceled that debt, we no longer hold them in punishment, that we go ahead and give them the church credit card and the checkbook again? No, I mean, even uh, the book of Proverbs says we've, God has given us a thing called wisdom. In fact, in Proverbs, it says that the wise person recognizes when there's danger and takes precautions. Well, if that individual isn't, there's no evidence of him repenting, him trying to work on his heart, would it be a loving thing to give him, put him back in that position? Would it be a wise thing? No. Should we forgive him? Absolutely. Should we treat him any differently? No, we should love him as a brother. We've canceled the debt. No matter what he's, even if he's lost the church millions of dollars, put the church in the hole. We love that person. We encourage that person. We help that person. 
And that, again, our desire is to see them and, you know, re- restored. And Lord willing, maybe they, they go back to that position and they serve with a whole new heart and new joy and, and, and new trust. It, yeah. But forgiveness is a hard thing. Forgiveness is extremely hard. And for some of us, it's not just going to be one time forgive and then all, all done. No, sometimes it's going to be, I need to forgive again. Today, I need to forgive. Next week, oh. I need to forgive again. You know, it's, it's hard. It is a hard thing. But we as believers in Christ are to be a forgiving people because we have been forgiven. Lastly, got to hurry this up. We're in uh, chapter 5. So we're saying no to vices, yes to virtues. No to falsehood, yes to truth. No to uncontrolled anger, yes to controlled anger. No to stealing, yes to hard work. No to words that rot, yes to words that build. Uh, No to unforgiving attitude, yes to forgiving attitude. Not grieving the Holy Spirit. And in in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul shows us the ultimate virtue, which is love. Look at uh, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Become, live your lives continually as imitators of God. The word imitator is where we get the word mimic. It's the idea of a copycat, someone who does exactly what the other does. How are we to do this? As beloved, as dearly loved children. God is our father, we are his children. We are to be imitators of God, following God. Now, um, I don't know if you've, as, as, a, as a kid, ever imitated your parents you know, I remember when my dad took me to work one day. I even wore clothes that looked like his. And I remember, I think I even packed like a bag lunch, even though we weren't going to stay till lunch, but I was, you know, I was going to be like dad. And I was following. I was imitating my dad. You know, uh, when I was young, we were at a, at, a, at a restaurant. And I remember seeing my grandfather and my dad sitting next to each other. And I noticed my grandfather, he, he ate weird. He called him like a pup, pup, pucker fish. Like, he did like that. And I looked at my dad, I noticed he ate the same way. Like, you know, he's, they're right there. And I'm like, wow, that's so weird. A couple of days later, I'm eating, and I see myself in the reflection. I'm like, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I was imitating my dad. Well, as Christians, we are to imitate our heavenly father. We are to imitate our heavenly father as beloved children. Now, I love this. Notice how he says, therefore, be imitators of God. He doesn't say, be imitators of God so that you may become beloved children. He says, you're already dearly loved. You're already dearly loved children. So guess what? Just mimic your daddy. Mimic your heavenly father. He moves on to verse 2. And walk. It's the same Greek word he's been using uh, again and again. He's going to continue to use. It's kind of reaching back to Paul's Hebrew roots. It's, it's this Greek word peripateo. It's the idea of as you, you're living your life, behaving. He says, walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you. And the word love is, is agape love. How did he love us? He gave himself, he offered, he surrendered himself up for us, on behalf of us, as an offering, as as a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant or a sweet-smelling aroma. Those are Old Testament temple, tabernacle worship uh, language. It's basically Jesus' life and his death uh, was 
accepted by God as a mean to, to pay the penalty for our sins and to, to offer us uh, ultimately uh, salvation. Jesus lived, he died for us. And in First uh, John, the apostle says that uh, as Jesus gave himself for us, we, the church, are to give each other, ourselves up to each other. As Christ gave himself up for us, we, the church, are to give each other, ourselves up to each other. That's how we love each other. We serve each other, and we're to walk in that. And when we walk in that, we're imitating our good, good Father. Real quick, as we close here, um, go to John, the book of John. So go back, Gospel of John Chapter 8. So here Jesus is uh, speaking to a group of, of, of people. And uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 38. Okay, and we're going to go all the way to verse 44. So chapter 38 to four, verse 44. Jesus is speaking here. Jesus says, I, I speak the things which I have seen my father, seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But now you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, they said to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. Ooh, that's a dig right there for Jesus. Because remember, Jesus was born, Mary was found to be pregnant before they had yet done the official wedding. So that's a dig. We were not born from sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We are called to throw off, say no to vices, say yes to virtues. Ultimately, what that looks like is imitating our heavenly father. When we don't do those things, what we're doing is we're imitating our old father, who's the devil. If someone is just practicing sin, but John says this, if you are practicing sin, if you are living in sin, living in unrighteousness, God is, is not your, your heavenly father. The devil is. And because of that, you're doing what the devil does. You're imitating your daddy. But if you are in Christ, you are part of God's household God is our heavenly father. We are to imitate our heavenly father, not our old father, because we're, we're different. We've changed. 
So that's why this idea of taking off the old self, putting on the new self. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is your daddy? Who is your father? Is it God, the creator, the sustainer, our heavenly father? Is he, re- is he your father? Or is it the devil? Are you imitating, if you're in Christ, are you imitating your heavenly father or are you imitating your old father? Who is your daddy? Who is your father? That answer will significantly affect your life. We are in Christ. So let's imitate our heavenly father. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I want to thank you for being a good dad, a wonderful dad, a trustworthy dad, uh, a, 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 a heavenly father who loves, who is gracious, who is merciful, who um, doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, who builds us up, who helps us. Thank you again that for this word. We as followers of Jesus want to imitate you. We want to follow you. We want to obey you. And Lord, when that happens, it benefits the church. It, it grows the church. It strengthens relationships within the church. And Lord, we right now are going through a significant transition. We're looking for a, a new head pastor. And, and it's in these significant times where we could get under each other's skins where we, we could harbor bitterness toward each other, where we could be false with one another, that we could uh, say things that are, say words that are, are not helpful but harmful. Lord, help us during this time. The enemy desires right now to get a foothold in Cascade Bible Church. He wants just a simple, uh, an inch, just enough wiggle room to cause a whole lot of damage. May you strengthen us to never give him a foothold, to never give him an inch, never give him license to to work in our lives, to work in the life of this church. May we be focused on you, on your word, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.